Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Like a Dog podcast, hosted by Andrea Paiva and Millie Travis. In this podcast, we discuss how to build the best relationship with your dog. From rescues to reactivity, we'll cover it all. All right. Well, welcome back to Think Like a Dog podcast. And today we are on episode four, and we're going to talk about common themes and typical first sessions. Mm -hmm. So in this episode, we are going to discuss the common factors that lead to your dog's unwanted behavior and what a typical first session looks like with a relationship and psychology-based trainer. So there is, you know, a lot of things that we're going to cover today. So we're going to try to give our input in most of these things. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I think there are more common themes than people would probably realize in a first session. Um, and it's the same, regardless of if it's a an in-home session or a session at the center, it's all the same common themes. Not all of them have all of these themes, but most of the time I've even guessed with a lot of these things and the owners are like, yep, you hit the nail on the head. All of this is uh, what is exactly happening. Um, but that's not always the case. So the first thing that I, I think that people don't realize when they walk into the center at least, or even when I walk into the house, is I am noticing everything. Like th- that's when the training starts. So whether your dog walks in um, pulling you down and, you know, uh, all the way at the end of the leash and you're basically the sled, um, or your dog is, I had a, a session where the person had to carry their dog in. I've had sessions where the person couldn't get the dog out of the car. I've had sessions um, where the dog just like ran out of the car off leash and walked right into the center. Like it's, I, I all of these things speak to the relationship from the second that we start. Um, and what happens when you sit down and we start talking, I'm noticing how is your dog responding to you? So I am looking at, um, first I'll tell you, don't drop the leash, keep your dog on a leash. And I am interested to see how quickly does your dog settle down? So given that boundary of the leash, is it one of these things where the dog is going to hide underneath you? Is the dog going to be sniffing everything at the um, in that radius of six feet? Is the dog going to be pacing? Um, is the dog going to be jumping on you? All of this. And then not only am I looking at that side of the dog, I'm also looking at how do you respond to all of these things? So if the dog is hiding under, underneath you, are you reaching down to pet it? Are you trying to pull him out? Are you doing a lot of talking? Um, if the dog is jumping on you, are you um, are you giving affection? Are you saying it's okay over and over again? Um, so for reactive sessions, so dogs that come in that um, either have attempted or have a history of attempting to bite um, humans or other dogs, most of the time, those are, are what we call back of the pack insecure dogs. And I think um, we've talked about doing an episode like specifically on pack positions and really going into all of that. Um, but most of the time, like I said, those are really insecure dogs. So when they're in a situation, um, at the center, out of their familiar situation, they're what, from the owner's perspective, a completely different dog. So they're really nervous. They're, um, you know, they're hiding, they're pacing. And at home, maybe we would see them attempting to bite or very forward behavior. But when we take them out of that environment, we see the the true dog, which is a nervous dog. And so for these guys, most of the time, um, I see 
the, I see a lot of jumping on the human and not jumping because we're excited, jumping because we're anxious. But more importantly, I see the human petting it. Um, and I see the human trying to comfort and trying to console. And people don't realize that in those moments, you are training. That is the thing that is fueling it, um, or at least reinforcing that feeling and that mindset and that behavior uh, to the dog and basically making them think, great, okay, this is the this is the right feeling, right? Um, and that's where it starts. Once I point that out, people tend to start trying to kind of act a little bit differently, but that goes back to that whole thing of your training in every single moment. We've talked about that in yeah. a lot of these episodes. So Yeah, and you talk about a lot respect for space. That was the first mm-hmm. point that you spoke with us in our first session is claiming back your space from your dog. Can you talk about more of what yeah. that looks like? Yeah, I mean, I literally have um, spiels in my head that I give at every first session. Um, and one of those is what what are resources to a dog, right? And and how do how do dogs go through the process of, of assuming that they own a certain resource? So when a new dog comes into a home, the first thing that they are going to do, and if you have done a session with me, you have heard me say these exact words, so sorry. Um, the... <laughs> first thing that they are going to do is they're going to identify resources. So where's the water? Where's the food? Where are toys? Um, who, who can I get a, affection from how, you know, in, in space, space being a big resource that people don't think about. So, um, am I allowed in this human space? Am I allowed on the couch? Am I allowed on the bed? Um, do I have free roam of the house? Things like that. And then when a dog can realize, or when a dog realizes that they can have any of these resources or all of these resources, Whenever they want them, they own them. So when a dog has a resource whenever they want, they own it. And that is really the the theme of a lot of um, these these points of a first session is what, what resources does your dog believe that they own? And chances are we are dealing with an insecure back-of-the-pack dog who in their natural world would own nothing and would not make a lot of decisions um, and is, is more suited for following than leading. So going back to your question, though, of space, it's it's not just your personal space. It's not just, um, you know, uh, having your dog jump on you and uh, you pet them. That's like a very blatant, uh, disrespectful way of getting affection and, and a lack of respect for, for, a, for you know, a human space. Um, but it's things like, does your dog follow you around the house all the time? Does your dog... Um, feel like when you sit down on the couch that they're allowed to just jump up right next to you or lay on top of you. Um, and things like that in their world, they, that means such something so different than what we think it is. So when a dog jumps on us as humans, we think, Oh, that dog loves us or that dog is excited to see us. Mm -hmm. But in their world, that is one of the most disrespectful things that they could do because they know that space is a resource. So in, you know, if it's a, I always give the example of my previous dog, Pastrami, who um, was a very front of the pack, um, confident female black lab. And it's one of the things that she was so good at was making other dogs, I mean, painfully aware of her space. She didn't let my current dog Kemper within probably three feet of her for the first month. And that wasn't because she was being mean, but that was because she was setting the tone of their relationship. Um, and eventually they became best friends and they played better than she had ever played with any other dog. But 
if a young puppy jumps on a, um, an older dog, that older dog isn't going to just lick them, right. Or start playing with Mm -hmm. them. Most of the time that older dog is going to correct them. And we think of that as they want attention. They want affection. Let me give it to them. Um, and then when it comes to the space of the house in general, I mean, that's a whole other issue. It's, it's not just our space as in our personal space, because if it's our, if our, if our dog can have our personal space whenever they want, they own us. It's not that they own that space. They own Mm -hmm. us. They own our affection. They own our attention. And then our dog becomes responsible for us. Yeah. And every time I walk into the room, when you made me aware of this, I've noticed that my dogs try to jump on me all the time. I mean, they did before. And what I've learned from you is all I have to do is just walk into them, Mm -hmm. just claim that space. Mm -hmm. And immediately they get the idea of what I'm trying to show them that, you know, I'm their leader. I need them to calm down and to respect my space. And they do. They back away. They go about what they wanted to do. They don't focus so much on me. Um, and that really changed, you know, for, for us as me being their owner, yeah. um, because we don't realize, we think when our dogs jump on us, it's so sweet, but in their world, it's not, you know? No, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you just don't see it, uh, from dog to dog, unless it's two dogs that are kind of on the same hierarchy, you know, two, two dogs that are best friends, same age, same energy, um, but the entire idea of a, of a first session is trying to figure out, well, why does that, why does your dog of a first session for reactivity, why is your dog thinking that it's up to them to deal with issues? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's why dogs bite is they're either trying to create space or they're trying to solve a problem. They're trying to correct. Um, they're not, they don't just do it for fun. Um, most of the time it's because the dog doesn't believe that the human is either capable or, um, it isn't showing them that they are capable of dealing with those problems for them, for the dog. So then, I mean, when a dog enters a relationship, they expect it to be unequal. There will be a leader. There will be a follower. Somebody will make decisions. Somebody will follow decisions. And if we don't step into that leadership role, we force the dog to, we force them to, um, and all of these little ways of claiming my space or at least making it where it's not that my dog is never allowed in my space. It's, it's, he has to be invited. It's any, any dog that comes into my space without an invitation. And we worked on this with your dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's an invasion of space. That's not an, invi- I, I didn't invite you. I didn't explicitly say you could come here and you start seeing the issues with this when you have multiple dogs and, you can't pet one without the other one coming in because they don't see your space as something that you get to decide who it, who's in it. When I started looking at space as also as a reward, kind of like a treat, it they understood that too. It's like when I allow them to come sit next to me, they understand they can't do that all the time. They can't sit on my couch all the time. They can't come up to me all the time. But when I allow them in, they understand, oh, this is my reward. And that is treated as a reward in our household right now. Yeah. I mean, you just, I have two points on that, that are, that makes so much sense, right? Where what you just said makes so much sense. So the first thing is your dogs are 
uh, are the perfect or the, the fights that you've had with your dogs are the perfect examples of why claiming your space matters of why claiming resources matter yeah. because that first fight, even though yes, you were carrying food, if we don't let our dogs know, Hey, this is my food and I'm going to share it with you when it's on, on my terms or Hey, this is my space and I'm going to share this with you on my terms or Hey, I'm opening a door and you can't just run out and go crazy. Everything is up to me here because I'm the leader. I make the decisions not because I'm bossy or I'm a bully, but be, so you don't have to, right? Mm-hmm. Because what happens is when we don't make these decisions for our dogs, especially in multi-dog households, we put it on them to make these decisions. And so yeah. then we see fights over food because in their mind, it's their food, yeah, right? Or we see fights over our space or claiming a human because in their mind, it's their human. Or fights over... Um, you know, correcting a high intensity dog that that fight maybe goes a little too far, which was the last one. I mean, definitely too far, but it, it's because they don't think of the human as somebody who is going to slow that down. So if we're not making the decisions for them, they do it and they do it with their teeth. I mean, yeah. it's not as nice as, as we do it. But the second point of what you just said about using space as a, as affection Um, as I was listening, just to make sure I didn't say anything stupid to the second (laughs) episode, um, on, you know, how to find the right trainer, we talked a lot about purely positive trainers and we talked about how we purely positive trainers will reward the dog when they're doing something right. But what I didn't mention, and I think is a very, you know, important kind of, uh, idea, not just when you're finding the right trainer, but when you're dealing with your dog in general is what is affection to the dog? So, you know, we might, I, I get that question a lot, especially in new client sessions that, well, how does the dog know when they're doing something right? You know, assuming that dogs walk this earth and all they think about is treats and us is a very simplified version of dogs. So more so than food, more so even than our affection, what dogs want more than all of that is safety and information. Um, Easton told me a quote that she had heard about dogs of, you know, dogs live off of food, water, and information. And I love, love, love that. So if we assume that, um, you know, our attention is enough to let the dog know, Hey, you're doing something right. We miss a large part of what it is to be a dog and, and to be a dog, you're focused more on survival and you're focused more on safety, especially when you're a dog living in a human world. When you don't have, this isn't natural to you. So not having that leader, um, that's not, I mean, not having that leader and having somebody who just shoves treats in your mouth all the time, that's not a reward. That's furthering the confusion. Absolutely. And with the last fight that happened between Bubbles and Kane, I'll lightly touch on this. It happened because we didn't really realize that Kane was really invading Bubbles' space. And Bubbles is a dog that takes space very seriously. He is a great dog when his space is respected. He likes to have his own space. And I understand that. I like to have my own space too. So, you know, last the, the last fight that happened, um, Kane and Bubbles were loose in the yard and they were running. Whenever I let Kane out in the yard, he turns into this T-Rex. He just goes and runs and runs like a crazy dog. He goes crazy. I mean, he looks insane. He takes these long runs around the yard 
and he body slams any dog that's in his way. Literally body slams. For Kane, that looks like fun because he looks like he's having fun. He's like body slamming, going, chasing dogs. They take turns. But for Bubbles, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like somebody really coming into his space. So they did that multiple times. We would let them run in the yard. That would happen. We would think it's so funny because they're running behind each other. But I didn't read uh, Bubbles' body language at that moment. And I should have thought more about this. But one day at night when I let them loose, Kane was doing his thing, you know, turned into the T-Rex. <laughs> and uh, Bubbles got was kind of irritated at that point. And that's when they started to fight. Um, and it looked kind of like they were playing at first, but then it got pretty serious. And for two pit bulls, strong pit bulls fighting, it's a matter of seconds before it starts to look scary. So thankfully, Ozzy was close and he was able to break it up. Um, it was terrible. You know, they both looked confused at that moment. Kane looked super confused. He didn't know what just happened. And Bubbles was just, you could see it in his face. He just was like in shock kind of. Um, and for the next few days, we just, you know, we had to split them up and we still do split them up because like I said, they're two different dogs. They have very different personalities. When Kane wants to play, he doesn't respect space as much as Bubbles and Bubbles takes that very serious. So when we do let them play now, we keep that we are in the room and we're close and we try to use the, the leash and that we have the slip lead on them. So we can break it up when we see that Bubbles is getting pretty uncomfortable. Um, but that's how much space is important in the dog world. You know, they, like you said, when they feel violated that someone is in their space, they use their teeth. Mm -hmm. That's the only way they, they know how to say, hey, back up. Um, but that's the same thing in, in our world. If we let them so much into our space, they're going to start claiming everything, your whole house, you. And that's when problems start to happen. Um, but if we can go more into it, you know, what happens if the undesirable behavior is only happening outside of the home? How are these factors really applied? If someone says, you know, in my house, they're great dogs. It's just when we go on a walk. I just want to fix that. I just don't want them to go towards other dogs. How would you say, well, you need to start here first? Yeah. So that's my like 95% rule. So <clears throat> a lot of people call me out for what I like to look at as like the tip of the iceberg issue. So the symptom of the actual issue. Um, <clears throat> even when you and I first talked, it was, you know, it's, we originally thought it was food aggression. You know, that's what you sort of mm -hmm. came to me. Um, I wish I could pull up, I probably still have it and I can send it to you, but your, um, your intake form, which was, I think you said something about how bubbles has food aggression with the other dogs or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, over time we realized that it's not, it's not food aggression and it's not necessarily always space, even with bubbles, it's feeling the need to control. Right. So whenever I have a dog that, well, it's every dog. Dogs don't like chaos. It's not fun for dogs to be um, watching. We, we think of it as excitement, um, but it, it, to them, it's an uncontrolled situation and therefore a threat to their safety. Okay. So over time, we start to realize, oh, this isn't food aggression. Oh, this isn't like even directed at Max. Oh, this isn't even, um, this isn't about toys. This isn't about, the, but the common theme through every single fight 
was high intensity from another dog that Bubbles felt like nobody else could control except for him. Mm -hmm. And how he learned that was through, and we've talked about this, um, I think in the last episode as well, how he learned that was watching you and Max play and how Max kind of controlled that situation yeah. before and how, how he learned that, okay, well, he's the one who makes the rules for her, but he's at this really crazy high intensity level um, all the time. So, uh, you know, if it comes down to it, I'm going to have to control him here. And then with Kane, um, that's pretty much the only time that Kane is at a high intensity level, but he is intense. And we didn't, we didn't, you know, we talked about this at the, uh, our session after, but there was no slowing the mind down before we opened up the, the door. Um, and so when we put a dog in a situation where it's, we've never taught them that we are in control of these decisions for them on a day to day, then the way that I look at it, if I let my dog do whatever they want, the 95% of the time that I spend with them inside of my home, which is where most people spend their time with their dog, then why are they going to believe me when I try to make a decision for them when I am on a walk or when I am outside of my home and I've now raised up the distraction level and they are, they have a, a raised up intensity level. Why, why are they going to look to me for direction here when they don't even do it when everything is calm in the house? So most of my first session is telling people, okay, so for the human, my job is to create you know, try to get your dog to see you as information center. So we're looking for ways to add structure. We're looking for ways to add boundaries, even though those ways might not be directly about something your dog is doing wrong. Um, it could be that we need to add structure even, you know, I, I'm a big fan of not having my dog in the kitchen. So I don't have a baby gate in the kitchen. My, it's just, my dog understands most of the time, um, that he's not allowed in there. Yeah. So it's not that he's ever done anything crazy wrong in the kitchen. It's just a boundary that I want to make sure that if I, you know, I do that on a day-to-day -day basis, then I sent you a video of this, the, uh, you know, the time where I put him next to me and I've got a German shepherd trying to go for him over and over and over again, he just falls asleep because he knows on a day-to-day -day basis, I make the decisions. It's not, it's not him. But imagine if I let him do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted inside the house, in that situation, when I'm using him for a session with a dog reactive dog, he's going to think that's up to him too. Why wouldn't he? The 95%, you know, you have to know how, what led up to that behavior. And that's what we always talk about with all of our dogs is there was something that led up to that behavior. Like when we brought Bubbles home, I have videos of them all three together taking treats mm -hmm. and all three running in the yard. And it's a hundred percent right. Bubbles saw the way Max was towards me because we would sit outside. I would throw the ball for Max. Max would bark. I'll throw the ball again. And he would just sit there and watch. Literally he mm -hmm. would sit right behind me and watch because Bubbles doesn't really like to play fetch. So no. yeah, he prefers can't imagine Bubbles playing fetch. No, <laughs> never. That dog sees the ball and he's like, you're going to get that? Yeah. You fetch. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's very, very true. And the respect for space is so important when it comes to the relationship with your dog. Now, we're going to talk about, two crate training. Crate training, there's so much behind crate training. And I'm such a firm believer in crate training now because of the multi-dog household that we have 
and how many dogs with anxiety that we've encountered. Um, but crate training is so important. And a lot of people think, I don't want my dog to stay in the crate for hours when I go out. I want my dog to chill, to lay on the couch. You know, I want to, I want to feel like they're comfortable, but your dog being outside of the crate is actually the opposite of that. Okay. So the crate for me is not a jail cell. It's a, it's a bedroom. So a lot of people look at the crate and, um, they use it while their dog is a puppy. They use it while, um, you know, if their dog is going to chew the couch up or the walls or if they're potty training, um, or they'll even use it, uh, here and there when they have a guest over or, you know, some, an electrician or whatever it is. Um, but the problem is, is that when we use it as something that is only there to convenience us, we almost do like this disservice to our dogs of providing them a coping mechanism. So I said before, this half of my first session is, okay, how do I make sure that the human um, becomes information center to the dog? How do I make sure that the human equals safety equals information to the dog? The other side of it is how how do I go about teaching a dog that has very unhealthy coping mechanisms when, when met with stress, um, like biting or barking or whatever you are there to see me for? How do I make sure that that dog um, learns healthier ways of dealing with this problem? The crate is probably one of the most basic ones. So I want to offer my dog a place where they can turn off, where they get to go and be like, okay, I'm clocked out. This one's on you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times more often than not, the, the first session I will ask people are, is your dog crate trained? And they will say, we used a crate for a while. My dog is great outside of the, in the house now. Um, but they are crate trained because when we had the crate, they loved the crate. And then I'm going in my head, why would you take something away from your dog that they loved? If they Mm -hmm. loved the crate, why not just keep it there? And what a lot of people don't realize is that dogs have a natural tendency to seek a secure den-like space to just relax and call their own. And by crate training your dog, you're actually assisting with that natural tendency and helping them feel more secure. Um, For us, when I really started to notice that crate training is really important is because of a dog that we took in as a rescue He was a beautiful black German shepherd and um, he came to us uh, through a guy that worked with my dad. He couldn't keep this dog. He was like still a puppy a few months old and we took him in and a few days later, um, I, my neighbor said, Hey, I'll, I'll get him. I want a dog. So I hooked him up and the dog went to him And my neighbor actually said, uh, after a few days with him, he's like, I can't do this. This dog, he won't stay in the crate. He broke out of the crate, chew my blinds. And I, I have to keep taking him everywhere. I have to take him to work with me because I can't leave him alone in the house. Um, and I'm like, man, that's so sad. I don't, I don't know where to put this dog now unless I take him because I already told the previous owner, this guy wants to adopt. And you know, it was a, that's a rookie mistake. I thought it was going to, you know, I thought it was going to work out, but didn't um, think that that was something that could cause him to, you know, give up. So 
I understand his side of it. I mean, he has to work. He the, he tried to do crate and he would break out of the crate every time mm -hmm. and it happened multiple times and every time he would eat through something. And that's when I said, okay, there has to be a better way. So I started looking into crates and I found Impact Dog Crates, which we're such big fans of because their crates are absolutely amazing. Their crates have allowed me to actually have as many dogs as we have now because as we all of our dogs, they have to stay separated. They have to have their own space. So if I didn't have impact dog crates, I wouldn't be able to achieve that because we have pretty strong dogs and they, you know, it started off where many of them didn't like the crate and I had to teach them how to like it. Uh, so when I found impact dog crates, the reason why I was really attracted by it is because it's actually engineered to outsmart your pets and to help pets that have separation anxiety. So they've made it in a way where it's completely escape proof and the dogs can't hurt themselves while trying to break out of the crate. They literally cannot break out of that crate. There is no way. And there is um, just enough openings where they have a lot of ventilation in there, but it's not so open where they can see everything around them and it overwhelms them. And it comes with so many different things that you can add like a high anxiety door that blocks that vision a little bit more. You have an option to get like a high anxiety crate, which is just one crate. There's no way to break it down. It's just a full on crate. And because of that crate, um, you know, I was able to take this dog into my home and introduce him to our dogs And surprisingly, he actually started to like the crate. I was um, using just one room in the house to keep him there. And I, I mean, he was okay with our dogs. He liked our dogs, but um, I, he hated the crate. I understood, you know, he was, he thought that meant he was just going to be locked in there and he had to break out. So when he figured he can't break out of this crate, it's actually pretty comfortable I started to leave the crate open during the day when he was loose in the house and he would just take himself to the crate every time he felt overwhelmed. And when I started to see that, I was so proud. I'm like, this is so awesome. Yeah. I love to see that. And uh, he would take himself to the crate. He would chill out. He would sleep through the night in the crate. But that's only after I found the right crate. So I tell people all the time, please invest in a good crate, because especially if your dog has crate anxiety. There is a way to take that anxiety out of them by reintroducing the crate. And we've dealt with this with, you know, our rescue dog, um, Salem. He did get adopted. It was awesome. He found the perfect owner. I'm so happy about that. And then we had Bubbles that was in the shelter taking anti-anxiety medications because he was so anxious in a crate. So we took him in, reintroduced him to the impact dog crates, and he started to love it. That is, I did not know that, um, that bubbles was ever, uh, had crate anxiety. Super anxious. He took it, um, he came home to us taking medication Then we had to ease him off of it. Yeah. But he loved the crate. I mean, I feel like when he noticed like, this is a cool spot, it's closed. I don't really see a lot. I can't see, you know, my a dog next to me because we have the crates lined up next to each other. And they were, he was fine. He loves it. He goes in there all the time. Sometimes I leave him loose, you know, in the room he stays in. And I leave the crate door open every time I leave them loose so they can have a choice whether or not they want to lay there. And I come back and Bubba's just chilling in the crate. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Bubs, you're supposed to be walking the yard right now, chilling. This is your free time, mm -hmm. you know, because they all have their own free time. But he chooses to go in the crate every time. But Impact 
they've made it possible for us. They're really, really awesome crates. So please invest in good crates. Um, another example, Rusty. Oh my, God. you wouldn't have been able to. Never. Rusty, we actually decided to take him in because he was so anxious at the shelter. He was hurting himself in the crate. That he, video of him is, yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking. He came, I mean, he was, um, there was a video of him just literally cutting his face open in the crate at the shelter. And he had to be isolated. The shelters first are overcrowded. And second is because the kennel he was in, after weeks of being there, there was a bite that broke out. So they immediately take those dogs and just, you know, split them up. So he ended up going into a crate and he was really, really bad. I mean, terrible. Um, so we took him in and he was so stressed. I mean, his eyes were just so big and like his, he would drool so much when he came to us is like, this dog is stressed out and he just got neutered. So he was still healing from that plus the stress and the only choice I had when I took him in was put him in the crate, but I was confident. I said, I have a high impact crate, the ones that you can't break down, the high anxiety ones, put him in there. He can't hurt himself. Of course, he didn't love it the first few days. He would bark continually. I would correct him. He would bark. And then I would teach him, you know, every time he goes in there, he can come in and out. Um, I'll leave it open, give him free time. Now he knows, like when I put him in the crate, he chills out. And yeah. then I, he has his free time too, but he tried to break the crate open when I initially put him there, but the way they're engineered, your dog can't hurt themselves in there. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Um, they can't break out of it and they're secure. You can leave them. I left him in that crate secure that when I came back, he was going to be in the same place in the same condition. Nothing was exactly. going to happen. Yeah. So crate training is... I am a big fan of crate training. Like I said, if I didn't crate train or believe in crate training, I wouldn't be able to have my dogs because they don't all get along and I have to keep them separated. But even if you had one dog, right? I mean, I I have a couple of clients who have impacts and they're now at the point where they have recrate trained this dog um, or these dogs that have severe anxiety or containment phobia, Um, not necessarily separation anxiety, but just cannot be in a crate. Um, but they got impacts and now they're both like, we can sell these because we've gotten over this, you know, now because they're going to move, they go camping, things like that. Now their dog can go in a wire crate. Now their dog can go in a cheaper crate or a portable crate or whatever it is because their dog now has a different idea of what the crate means. So it's one of, it's, I get a lot of people who say, we've tried the crate. My dog freaks out in the crate. Um, My dog hates the crate. You, it's because we have the wrong perception of the crate. That doesn't, that's not something that's not trainable. It absolutely is. But the importance of the crate, I mean, all of your dogs are adults, but the importance of the crate isn't to watch, you know, potty train, even though it is helpful, um, or to uh, make sure they don't chew things up. The importance is to be able to press pause. So in every moment, your dog is learning from you, regardless of if you think you're teaching anything. So if you have to go be a human, right? And take your kids or, you know, have a birthday party or whatever it is, or maybe you've had a long day at work and you really don't want to be um, overly aware of what you are, uh, your interactions with your dog. The crate is a great way to be like, okay, I know that I am not capable of making sure that what you learn when you're out of here is healthy and what I want. So this is my way of saying, okay, press pause, take a, take a break. But there's, 
a trillion different ways. I, I use the crate. It's a, it's a way to kind of, like I said, press pause. It's a, I, I feed my dogs in the crate whenever I get a new dog because I want to make sure that I am teaching them that there's not going to be competition around the food. Um, so I feed them in there with the door closed. It also helps create a different association for the crate. My dogs sleep in the crate um, with the door closed. So then that way they can kind of go th- an entire night of sleep without having to worry about anything, being clocked out. Um, I also use the crate as latent learning. Um, we talked about that, I think, at one of our sessions. So whenever I go on a long walk with my dog or I do um, some sort of training session with a dog or at day camp, whenever we work a dog, so when Rusty was at day camp and we worked him um, and we could tell, okay, he's getting to a point where this is a lot for him because it was a lot for him the whole day. He had issues with other dogs and all of a sudden he found himself in a room with 20 of them. So, mm-hmm. um, but it would be 20 minutes out and then 30 minutes in the crate to have it just be like sink in. So it's not something where the dog goes from learning to just a party or doing whatever they were doing before. It's okay. You just took in a lot of information. Now kind of just sit there and think about it and take a nap, whatever it is, whatever you want to do in there, but relax and decompress. And that's where dogs really do relax and decompress when they're in their crate. Uh, And a lot of people like, you know, the guy that adopted um, Salem and then said he couldn't do it because of his crate anxiety could all be fixed with just the right crate. Mm-hmm. So even if your dog has crate anxiety, it just has to be reintroduced. And like Millie said, once you reintroduce it in a secured crate where they can't hurt themselves, you can always downgrade once they're used to it. Mm-hmm. Like Bubbles, I can totally put him in a wired crate right now. We do. He would be fine. Yeah, at camp. He goes in there, when, he chills out. And he watches other dogs play at a high intensity level when we're working on that with the pack. And he still is able to recognize, I'm in the crate. That really has nothing to do with me right now. So yeah. I can just relax here. Yeah, he understands yeah. that once he's in there, that's his relaxed time. Nothing outside of that matters. And we do also um, crate our dogs at nighttime because if we don't, they will be wandering the whole night. Mm -hmm. I mean, they literally, they do not sleep. They sleep and then they wake up and they bark at something and they go back to bed. And it's, you know, it's not their clock out time. They don't understand if they're not in the crate. So we've made it to where once they're in the crate, they, they're in there throughout the day. And because we have so, you know, our dogs and we have to separate them, we do separate that. We do crate rotate every hour, an hour and a half. I crate rotate throughout the day. So they do see, you know, once they're in the crate and the other dog is loose, they see that other dog playing or barking or whatever, but they don't really care about it because they're in the crate at that moment. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's in, interesting to see that, you know, that's really your dog's bedroom. And once they're on there, the door's closed. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're, we've planned on talking about having like a whole episode on crate training, but that's the reason why it's such a, a common theme for um, a, a first client session is that when we don't crate train our dogs, we don't offer them a way to turn off. We don't offer them um, a boundary on our space on top of we don't offer them um, kind of their own bedroom and a a way to decompress. So the not having a, a, not being crate trained or not having a crate in your home or not having a a specific schedule, it can lead to um, behavioral problems. So uh, that would be probably the first big thing uh, outside of a lack of respect for space is that they don't have a crate in the house or they've never put the dog in the crate. 
Um, the next thing that I always ask is, is your dog allowed on furniture? And I get, um, a variety of responses. So the first response that I get is yes, all the time. No problem. They're allowed on furniture whenever they want in any room that they want, no matter what. Uh, and we'll talk about why that's, that can be an issue. Um, the second problem that I, I get, or the second response that I get is yes, but only when invited. And the problem that I run into with this is when I ask my follow-up question, when do they not, when are they not invited? They never, they don't have an answer. So it's, you know, my dog, um, people say my dog is allowed on furniture when I, uh, when they ask for permission, but have you ever said no? So then that's not asking, that's not asking for permission. That's your dog doing some sort of certain, you know, body language sign, whether it's sit and eye contact. Um, and he knows if I do this, I get this. It's not that he's going through you. It's just kind of this routine that you, a song and dance that you guys go through. And then I get a third of yes, but, um, only on a certain piece of furniture now. Okay. So the reason that I am uh, I should probably preface, and this is what I do in all my sessions, because normally by this time people are looking at me like, I'm leaving. You can't, my dog's not allowed on the couch. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. But I'm not anti-dogs on furniture. I'm not even anti-dog sleeping in bed. It's I'm anti-confusing our dogs for the sake of what we want. Because to them, them getting up on furniture and making that decision over and over and over again um, throughout the day, one, that's a decision that they are making. So then when it comes time to let's say it's leash reactivity. So so when it comes time to go on a walk, your dog is thinking, well, I just made like a hundred decisions to get on and off the couch whenever I wanted. Of course, it's my decision out here to decide what I need to do with that other dog that's walking past us. The second thing though, is that it's a, it's your space. It's most of the time that dogs get up on the couch, they want to be on top of us. Um, So when that happens, then that's a lack of respect for space. And then the third thing is, elevation in the animal world is status. So the higher up the dog is, I mean, if we're sharing that kind of same spatial plane with our dogs, we kind of put them on the same level as us. And how about sleeping in bed? How does that play into even more in depth allowed on furniture, but it goes deeper than that sleeping in bed. Is this at Aussie? Is this like, are you going to just put it? Uh (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. In our dog's natural world, um, and I learned this from, from Sherry Lucas. She's uh, my mentor and, a, and an incredible trainer. In a dog's natural world, it, it's not their pack leader is going to sleep away from the rest of the pack. Normally, they're going to do this um, to provide protection and direction. That makes complete sense. So they've got to be on the front lines. They've got to be aware of all the threats that are coming in. And normally, that, that pack leader, that dog, is going to sleep on top of a hill. So every night that we spend with our dogs in our space, right, in our space, okay, most people sleep around their dogs, so we're yielding to their space, um, not vice versa. But every night we spend with our dogs, we're spending eight hours telling them that it can't be us that's the leader because we're sleeping with them. So we're, we're just part of the pack. So it it's means something so different to our dogs than it does to humans. Um, and a lot of times that we have a dog that sleeps in the bed, it's a dog that also follows the human around the house. It's a dog that also is, you know, struggles in the crate when alone or um, struggles just being alone in general. So every night you're practicing eight hours of that dog owning your space. And that's not healthy if, if your dog can't just relax on its own throughout the day. And how do you 
just if you can make some quick points, how do you take away that privilege of being in bed? The crate. I mean, it's, it's so simple. And I want the crate most of the time out of the bedroom. I like the crate um, unless we're potty training. Um, so unless you've got a little baby puppy that you're not going to hear in the middle of the night and you've got to wake up to take them outside, that crate needs to be out of your bedroom because I want your dog to have practice not being in the same room with you. And most of the time after COVID, there's a lot of dogs out there that don't know what it is like to be in a room without a human. That is 100% true. Now with the dogs being outside of your bedroom in a crate, you are going to go through that period of time where they throw a fit. Oh, it's, I mean, it's not going to be fun that first week. A lot of this stuff, when you're adding more like new rules and boundaries, it's going, I tell my clients all the time, your dog is going to go home and they are going to do their best at convincing you that I do not know what I'm talking about, that everything that I just said was a lie and you're torturing them. Once you get through that first week, most of the time they're like, cool, great. No problem. Right? Yeah. This, this space isn't really that bad. You don't kick me accidentally in, in my, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever it is. It's, uh, this is my bedroom and I get to just hang out here, but absolutely expect protest. Yeah. And, and just establishing these, these rules within your relationship with your dog, it's showing them that you are their leader and it's reinforcing that relationship over and over again. Now with free feeding, Lots of people do this. They don't think about it. The dog's sitting right next to you. You give them a little bit of your food. How does that play into them confusing their relationship with you? What you're talking about is feeding from the table once again at Aussie, probably, right? Aussie, this please episode is to this Aussie. It's at, <laughs> at Aussie. Um, but free feeding is people who just leave their dog's food bowl down whenever, um, just for extended periods of time. There's two big reasons that I don't like this. Um, one is medical. So I grew up working in the vet, uh, in vet clinics. And, um, whenever I would walk into a room and we have this thing in the South, I'm assuming it's in the South, um, called ADR, meaning ain't doing right. So when the dog comes in, <laughs> the owner's just like, my dog's just not acting themselves. Okay. Um, and when that happens and I walk in and I go, okay, well, are we eating and drinking? Okay. And then they go, well, we free feed, so I don't really know appetite-wise. So your dog's appetite is a huge indicator of their physical health. Um, Pastrami, my, my black lab, she passed away in September from cancer, but there were two times in her life that she did not eat when I put food down. One time was about a year ago. I got home, put food down, she walked away, and being an 11-year-old dog, she was already pretty lazy and kind of just didn't do a lot. So energy level, I couldn't really, it, it hadn't changed. She sleeps all day anyway. Um, when I put food down though, and she walked away, I knew there was something wrong. I got her into the vet, um, 20, 30 minutes later and she had 105 degree temp. Mm -hmm. It was, she was sick. She had to go on fluids, spend the night. And if I hadn't gotten her there, who knows? So it's one of these things where I really, I take it so seriously because of my experience with it. Now, Getting your dog going from free feeding to structured feeding can be tough. Um, that's where a little bit of tough love comes into play. Um, but it's not, it's not natural for our dogs to just have, once again, a resource whenever they want it. It's not natural for them to just have food whenever. 
dogs come from wolves. They hunt and they walk miles and miles and miles a day to find food and then they have to kill it. And then they have to, there's a hierarchy of who eats what. And it's not just as easy as go in this corner and you're going to find your bowl and it's always going to be filled with food. But people think that when they free feed, I've had people the same with um, the the e-collar, they come in, they say, I've never used the stem on my dog. I have people who come in and they say, um, my dog free feeds and, you know, it took a long time to get her to just eat, you know, to not eat when it was down to just kind of graze throughout the day. And I'm looking at them like, I got some bad news. We got to go back <laughs> because I want my dog to understand that this food belongs to me and I am sharing it with you. Now, when I give it to you, I'm not going to mess with you, which is why I like putting my dogs in the crate. I don't mess with my dog while they're eating. I think that that's kind of, we're the only species on earth that likes to mess with another species while they're eating. And we think that that's going to train them to not bite us while they have food. Um, but that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. But for free feeding is, it's huge. I mean, food is survival. There is not a dog on this earth that is not um, food motivated. All dogs are food motivated. It's a matter of how how available is that resource to them. And they're learning when that, that resource is just out whenever. Yeah, and with free feeding in that way, we have learned to get our dogs in a schedule. So they eat every day, same time. And that does allow us to tell so much about our dogs because if they skip a meal, if they're not interested we know to really pay attention to their behavior. So that allows you to see a problem before it gets worse. That's why it's so important to have that structure with your dog. And again, all of our dogs do also eat in their crate. And Kane, um, he has a lot of freedom and he comes in the house. He's good with little dogs, so he's around our little dogs. But when I try to feed him around the little dogs, because our, our little uh, dogs, Poochie and Louie, they, um, they eat, you know, in their own space. But if I try to feed Kane inside the house, he doesn't eat. It's, he likes to eat in the crate. So if I put his bowl in the crate, close the door, he will eat. But if I don't, he just doesn't feel comfortable because mm-hmm. the little dogs are out and he feels like they're going to, they, they do walk into his space. So he doesn't feel comfortable. No, Poochie runs this house. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's Ozzy's fault. Yeah. He, he ruined that dog. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable eating around Poochie either. No. Uh, <laughs> I was nervous about potentially using his toy for the last episode. Exactly. If he found out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like if I'm going from free feeding to structured feeding, the best way to do it is feed them in the crate. Set a timer on the microwave, whatever, or on your phone. That would make more sense um, for 10, 15 minutes and then take the food up. Now, let's say, for example, your dog gets three cups a day. You do a cup and a half in the morning, a cup and a half at night. You put food a cup and a half in the morning down. They don't eat a thing. That doesn't mean they get three cups that night. It's a cup and a half every single time. And you're banking on them getting hungry enough to eat when it's down. Mm. You don't supplement with extra food. You don't supplement with extra table food, Ozzy. Um, you don't supplement with uh, treats or, or anything extra. And it's not a matter of enticing them to eat, which you, that's a vicious cycle or a snowball effect that a lot of my clients go through um, where they their dog doesn't want to eat this thing because the food's just out in general. And then they're like, okay, well, I guess I got to buy a different food. Now I got to buy this food. Now I got to buy this food rather than this is the food that you have. And this is the food that you are going to eat when it is down. 
Yeah. And my, when Cain was initially adopted, he was adopted by my parents and my brother. They went together and found Cain. Um, and when Cain came home, my mom uh, would put kibble down and Cain would not eat the kibble. So she said, oh, he must not like kibble, so I'm going to cook for him. So she cooked for him. This, this dog ate steak and chicken and rice and whatever he wanted for months. And my brother would even take him out to like restaurants and order him an entrees. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's where, and then Kane came to live with us and then I learned and, you know, we got into more structure. We met Millie, things changed. And then Kane, Kane came to day camp and realized he was a dog. Uh, so, you know, free feeding your dogs and leaving the food out. I'm not even doing this with Poochie um, before. Poochie's, he's, you know, he's a little dog and he... Um, He's a multi-poo. He's like eight pounds. Little dog, big energy. Big energy, yes. And when we adopted him, he was like three, four months and he was already neutered. Um, and it was, you know, he has a lot of that stress of like... He's trying to compensate for something. Is that yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> Poor, neutered too early. Oh, I feel like, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, I feel like he didn't really have the opportunity to develop. Yeah. Um, and he had so much stress of you know, his first home, he was stuck in the crate most of the day. He didn't really leave that crate more than a few hours. And then he came to us and we like gave him everything. His food would be out all the time, but he's not, he doesn't have such a big appetite. So in the morning he has no interest in food. So I put the food out at that time. If he doesn't eat it within the first 30 minutes, I take it away and there goes that opportunity. And then we do it again in the afternoon. But before I used to leave it all day. And then I was one of those people that we used to go to the vet. Hey, my dog's not eating. Oh, when was the last time he ate? Um, I think it was, mm -hmm. you know, I never had a clear answer and that resulted in multiple tests, multiple things for them to try to figure out what was going on. Cause your vet can't, I mean, your dog can't tell your vet like, Oh, Hey, I have a toothache or, yeah. Oh, Hey, you know, I have something on my spleen or something mm -hmm. awful. It can be something really small or, Oh, hey, I got into the human food it, mm -hmm. or it can be something huge. But your your dog's appetite is a huge, huge like window into their physical well-being. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, all of this is is just resources that your dog behaviorally um, the behavioral benefits of it is if your dog owns all of these resources, your space, your attention, food, toys. That's another big one is especially for in-home sessions. I walk in and they're it's like dog toys rs went off like a bomb went off in the house of just toys everywhere so your dog comes into this house they realize they own all of these resources your entire house because you don't limit space um on top of you and then you wonder why when somebody comes over or when you go on a walk your dog thinks it's up to them to make decisions about potentially all of these threats and maybe, um, you know, they aren't getting the exercise they need or at least not in the right way or they're being overstimulated. And I think that that's something that we just wait to get into in a whole different episode because I could talk for, I mean, a million years about exercise and the right way to exercise your dog and um, what we think of as good, fun, good and fun exercise and um, what that can create behaviorally. But I think the the big themes here um, for my first client sessions are all the same. It's the dog has too much re freedom, able to make too many decisions, um, not having fun making those decisions. And that's important to note is it's not 
fun for your dog to come into a world that they know nothing about and make all of the decisions, not only for themselves, but for you. And now on top of that, they own everything. So now they're responsible for, you know, yes, they don't pay your bills, but they might as well assume that they're responsible for the mortgage, the house, the space, the people who walk by on the sidewalk, your, you know, their food, your food, your attention, all of this. And that, and you wonder why your dog has such a big burden and such a big heavy weight on their shoulders is because we gave them so much and they aren't suited to own that much. That's not their personality. Um, or they are very suited for it. And now they believe you, they think it's theirs. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think in a, a new client session, or if I can tell people who are thinking about getting dogs or already own a dog and, and that dog has behavioral issues, look at what resources does your dog have whenever they want them because they own those. What's a way that works for your family to create structure around those, those resources? And then third, how can I make sure that I make more decisions for my dog? Not decisions that my dog is doing something wrong for, but maybe I don't allow my dog in the kitchen or maybe I'm not allowing my dog on the furniture or in my bedroom or I work on thresholds, whatever it is. But how can I insert myself more into making sure my in my dog's day-to-day life inside the home so that it's normal and it's familiar for them to look to me for direction when we're outside of the home mm-hmm. or when we're in that situation where we're having a problem? Yeah, and... Your dog, when they look at you as their leader and look at you to make those decisions for them, you notice a burden just come off of your dog. For us, it was the same way when we first met Millie and she told us about all these different recommendations that she makes with all her clients. What we need to do first before seeing any kind of change is to establish these relationship boundaries and to be able to claim back your space. Once we did that, our dogs now understand their role in our relationship. When we go out on walks, they understand. When we go to the vet, they understand. And it's a very pleasant experience for me and for them as well because now they're not so worried about making decisions. Mm -hmm. And you can literally see that change in your dog. That's what's so awesome. So we talked about a lot today, you know, with common themes and the typical first session Um, In this episode, we discussed a lot of these pointers. And again, try finding a trainer that can talk to you about your specific situation and give you these different uh, pointers so you can know where to start because it can feel like a lot. Most of us bring a dog home and we just allow them in our space. We don't think we don't think much of this, you know, other than we think it's mean to not. And it's it's just going from human to dog and trying a little bit harder to think more like a dog. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we try to, you know, make our dogs seem so, um, try to put our thoughts on our dogs. Most of the time we try to humanize them so much that we forgot that they are a dog and we have to understand them as a dog, as a species dog to understand more about what their instincts and what it means you know, to be a dog for us to provide that information to them the right way. Um, So, you know, if you guys have any questions that you'd like for us to um, answer on the podcast, please feel free to email us. Please, yeah. And in the next episode, we are going to talk about how to pick the right dog for your family. I think we're going to make it a series too. So bringing home a new dog and what that looks like maybe the first 
uh, before you get them the first couple weeks, first six months, and all the different things that can come with bringing home a, a whole new family member. Yeah, it's a big one. I mean, I've done it a few times, so I'll have Just plenty of stories. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget that practice makes progress. All right. Until next time. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Think Like a Dog Podcast and follow at Mirror Image Canine for training tips. If you have any questions, please reach out to us via email at info at thinklikeadogpodcast.com.